0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.
1: TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 29. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 29 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn funy and Randy Zigenfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Zigenfus.
2: And I'm Lynn funy Good morning.
1: Good morning, Lynn. So today
2: we're talking about Education Reimagined with Kelly Young, Kelly Young is the director of Education Reimagined, an initiative of Convergence committed to accelerating the growth and impact of the learner-centered education movement. Education Reimagined was launched out of an 18-month Convergence dialogue that she envisioned and led among 28 ideologically diverse education practitioners and leaders to reimagine education. Kelly was also a founding vice president of Convergence. Previously, she served as the interim chief of the Office of Family and Public Engagement for the District of Columbia Public Schools, where she helped implement home visits and other high-impact family engagement strategies. During her tenure, she led DCPS's strategic planning process that started by engaging thousands of students, teachers, parents, and community members in a hopes and dreams campaign, and ended in a five-year district-wide plan. Prior to that, from 1998 to 2007, Kelly served as the executive director of a national political organization. Under her leadership, the organization thrived and grew from a budget of 8000 to be one of the largest political action committees in the country, helping to elect over a hundred of candidates nationwide. She's a mother of two children, received her JD from Georgetown University Law Center and a BA in Anthropology from the University of Virginia.
1: Welcome to the show, Kelly.
3: Thank you. Glad to be
1: here. We are very excited to chat with you today. We've been inspired and intrigued by uh, the Education Reimagine work. So let's get the conversation started. So, author Warren Berger describes a beautiful question as one that's ambitious and actionable. So, in your work in Education Reimagine, what is the beautiful question behind that work and the transformational vision for education?
3: So, the question that drives us, the, the beautiful question that drives us, is how do we build an education system that ensures that each and every child thrives and is prepared for life and to be a lifelong learner? And so, uh, that is the question that has motiv- motivated us. And, mm-hmm. um, and in the transformational vision that the, the group put out, you'll see that there's a purpose statement of what they say that education is for, and it's really um, to enable children to fulfill their full potential as empowered individuals, be constructive members of their communities, productive participants in the economy, and engaged citizens of the U.S. and the world. So that's what drives us. Mm-hmm.
1: Very exciting.
2: Yeah, very exciting work. And <laughs> In our system, you know, we often feel like the system itself impacts our choices and opportunities. Talk to us about the challenge in industrial era system in this 21st century.
3: Uh, great question. So what we often forget um, is that at all times we are living inside of a, a particular paradigm and inside of education in particular that uh, we are still primarily in an industrial era uh, paradigm. And what that means is, you know, over 100 years ago the system got designed by a group of people uh, and what they, the question that they were grappling with is how do we get education to all kids? right? How do we make it available? And so at the time, it was the Industrial Revolution, so they were designing it for standardization and efficiency. How do we standardize the delivery of education to get as many kids as possible, get them the exact same thing? Um, And whether we were able to do that or not is another question, but that was the design of it. Um, And so the system, the ways that it was designed for standardization and efficiency are, are many of the things that we often take for granted, that we cohort kids by age. Um, that kids learn in school buildings six hours a day, 180 days a year on the agrarian calendar, that learning only counts when it's done in that building during those, during those hours, um, that we divide learning up into subjects, um, and that we have a linear curriculum, um, but all of that was because at the last turn of the century, we really did believe we could catalog all knowledge. And we were trying to give kids a, um, a, a taste of all of the subjects. And we thought, um, because it's a catalog, why not do it alphabetically? Which we now know, given the amount of knowledge, there's no way we could ever catalog everything. Um, and that no longer is the design of the system to transfer knowledge. But it's to, we need a whole host of knowledge, skills, and dispositions for kids.
1: So uh, in your work, you focus on this idea of a learner-centered paradigm, and you offer some specific uh, descriptors of what exactly that looks like. So talk to us for a bit about this vision for the learner-centered paradigm. How is this different?
3: Yeah, so if you think about that, how the industrial era system was designed, it was designed to have all kids have to adapt to a standardized system. And if they weren't able to adapt, they weren't. They weren't successful in school. In a learner centric paradigm, what you're really doing is you're you're develop you're creating a system that is fully adaptable to the needs and aspirations of each and every child. And so all of the sudden the, the, the big idea is that the how, when, where, and with whom learning happens all is malleable. So we've inherited one possible way of constructing the when, where, how and with whom that learning can happen and there's nothing wrong with that construction. Um, it's just now we're learning that it doesn't serve the needs of each and every child. It does some for some kids. Um, so once you see that is malleable and you see that the current system is one possible way of constructing it, then you're freed up to start saying, well what are the other ways that we could that we could construct it? So for us, the, the paradigm shift, um, is that that opening up and that understanding that I don't have to be, I don't have to construct learning in a classroom. I don't have to do it cohorting kids by age. I don't have to only count learning that happens in the classroom. And I can. It just doesn't have to be done that way.
2: So, this would certainly be a, a shift for us, this learner centered paradigm, and one way that we can support that is to think about learning domains and elements of the learning experience and we're currently using your your framework of knowledge skills and abilities or dispositions as we work through our visioning process. now why why is this framework so critical to this shift?
3: Yeah, so. When our group started, um, these 28 ideologically diverse people who did not agree with one another at all. Um, we actually started with, you know, what it, we, we first started with, what is the purpose of education? And then we said, okay, well, if it really is to have all kids thriving um, and prepared for all of the, the things I mentioned before, civic life, work, uh, family life, and just to be happy human beings, um, what outcomes do we want to see for kids? And it became um so the they really saw that it was no longer knowledge was kind of the keys to the kingdom like it once was. We have access to lots and lots of information um it doesn't mean knowledge is not important it's just not the only thing that's important that really where the the emphasis now gets put uh, needs to be is in the skills and dispositions that kids um, are able to uh, to develop. So being able to critically think, learning how to learn, time and goal management, working collaboratively, communication, um, being able to self-reflect, metacognition um, as well as dispositions like being able to be resilient, uh, to be curious, take initiative, um, show persistence at things. So um, so all of a sudden those are the things. People are going to be constantly changing professions. We already often are. Um, and you're you're going to have to reinvent yourself multiple times um, as as in in your career. I mean, we experience that as adults now. Uh, kids in the uh, graduating in ten to fifteen years are going to even experience that more. And so, the ability to learn um, and to to show all of of those uh, dispositions and those skills is what's going to provide them success.
2: Mm-hmm. And those abilities and dispositions transcend knowledge and skills to lead students to more opportunities later in
3: life. Exactly.
1: And there are, def- there are definite parallels between the process that you described and what we've been experiencing as we've been working through our own process too, that there's definitely more of an emphasis on those skills and dispositions. And I wouldn't say less emphasis on knowledge, but I think the fact that we live in the world that we live in now where um access to technology provides access to so much information um, that really changes that the relationship between those different elements
3: exactly and and what we are finding all across the country for people like you who are delving into this in um, in a particular school district or school or or community uh, is that when you ask parents and teachers and kids what they really want the the list very much focuses on those um, on those skills and those, and those dispositions. They want their kids and they want to be confident and well-rounded and, um, and prepared for life. So it's exciting to see so many different communities coming to the same Mm conclusion.
1: Yeah. And it, and it definitely provides a solid base for building this learner centered, uh, paradigm that, that Mm -hmm. we're talking about here in the report. You identify five elements designed to serve as a North star to, uh, guide innovation, can you talk with us a little bit about these elements and why they are important?
3: Absolutely. So in the, in the uh, report, once we grappled with the question of what are the outcomes for kids, and we're now in a learner-centered paradigm, so we now think that all of the when, where, how, with whom is malleable, we started to ask ourselves, so what kinds of learning environments would actually deliver those kinds of results for kids? And so the North Star that came out of that lists five distinct elements. Um, so the first is competency-based, that learning would, would have children moving through a system based on their mastery or their proficiency in certain in, in sets of competencies and, and, re- and moving on when they were ready for the next challenge. As opposed to our current time-based system that moves kids on whether they already knew it um, coming in, they still have to sit through the class or whether they haven't mastered it by the end of the class and they still need to move on. Um, so the second element is that learning is personalized, relevant, and contextualized. And that's kind of a, a mouthful, three distinct I- ideas put into one. Personalized is that you really do meet the child where they are, who they are, um, their family, their community, their, their backgrounds, their aptitudes, their, their interests, their passions, their fears, um, and you are taking that, and you're, you're taking all of that into account. That learning is relevant and contextualized. That learning is made that is that learning is made relevant to their their lives. We all learn best when it's when we know why we're learning something. Um, and contextualized is that learning is actually um, done in ways that it makes sense outside of a school building it's contextualized in how you would really use this learning in, in real world so authentic learning experiences the third element is learner agency so our current system really was designed to have compliant children that they were de- they were meant to come which we know they don't like to be <laughs> nor do the adults right for that i was matter. gonna say not, yeah. not to the adults. <laughs> darn it doesn't work Um, (laughs) uh, so but it really was designed to have compliance kids who come in and fit the system and do as they're told and you know proceed when the bell rings and do as 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 the adults want and 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 to be frank it was also designed to have compliant teachers and compliant principals and it was compliance all the way up and in a learner centered you actually realize that who, who the only person who can do the learning is the learner we can help, we can facilitate, we can coach, we can do all sorts of other things. Um, but the learning actually is done by the learner, and um, and that learning happens when the learner is engaged. Um, so when it's co-designed with them, both the ecosystem, the learning experiences, and the learning pathways. Um, the fourth element is, and, and let me say one more thing, which is, With learner agency, the same thing is true with the adults. Once you have learner agency, it's got to be all the way up agency, that the teachers have agency, that the principals have agency, that it is no longer a compliance-based system trying to get learner agency out. Um, Those two things won't work together. Fourth is learning is socially embedded. So we can all imagine that we could actually get kids exactly what they need, when they want it, uh, or when they need it, Uh, and be sitting in front of computers, for example, all day, learning different things. But that wouldn't be great learning. Learning is socially embedded. Learning is a social phenomenon that happens with peers and adults and in caring communities. And so socially embedded is saying that that is exactly the case. And number five is that learning is open-walled. Right now, we have that artificial construct that learning only happens in a school building in those six-hour days. Um, It's all that counts. It's all that we really measure. It's all that we take into uh, you know that we that we take into consideration and so open-walled is that learning happens in lots of different places at lots of different times and it can all count Um, and so you know the the biggest and brightest version of open walled would be really seeing the community as the playground of learning um, and that that learning would happen in lots of different places and you would have ways of actually knowing uh, what competencies a child was mastering all of those diverse experiences.
1: Yeah, I love all those five things because I think they really help us as leaders to generate conversations around what do we believe about learning? And sometimes the things that come out in that conversation are not necessarily aligned with that, but we can go back to those to help draw people uh, to a better understanding of those and, and more towards that learner-centered environment. So I think they're really, they're really good pillars and good good things to ground the conversation in.
3: Yes, and, and the other thing we've really noticed is that as people enter a learner-centered paradigm, all five of those begin to emerge. They, not everybody starts with all five of them in practice, but how you do competency-based learning when you are taking the other four into account is very different than if you are in a school-centered paradigm doing competency-based to a child, to a child.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, And so those five elements really do interact with one another. Even if you're really focused on one, um, you find that learner-centered pioneers, what we call them, people who are really um, trying to figure out how to make this work in their learning environments, Um, how they design each one of those will be different because they're taking into account the others.
2: Mm -hmm. And we have to have the assumption that everything is malleable. And I think that's really an interesting, An interesting way to frame that because we often come back to what we've done in the past and the constraints we have in our system and the schedule and the buses and prepping for the test and putting everything on the table and saying it's all malleable is is interesting. If we make this shift and we are in this uh, more learner-centered vision and engaging learners and providing learners with agency. Talk to us about the types of assessments that we need to consider during this implementation as we, as we transition.
3: Yes, and you know, this is obviously a very hot question right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kinds of assessments do we have, and, um, and especially with the new ESSA national legislation that puts that back into state's, uh, states control. Our group doesn't pretend to have answers about exactly what kinds of assessments need to be, but what they were very, what they did agree on was that right now assessment, the kinds of assessments we've been using are assessments of learning, which are really third party um, judgments on, on learning. Um, and while those can be important at times to know how a system overall is, is happening, that assessment for learning and as learning are the most essential components um, and so let me just say a little bit about those assessment for learning is when the you're getting immediate feedback from the assessment and it's actually able to inform what kind of instruction and what kind of learning pathway, what you might do next in your learning pathway and assessment as learning is something that can only be done by the learner. It's really that metacognition, metacognitive part. It's the self-reflection and using assessment to self, to, to look and see how can I improve, how could I do things differently, and, um, and starting to notice how you learn best and how you might not learn best and how you might be able to demonstrate mastery of things better than other ways. Um, and so the idea is that you may always need assessment of learning, but to the degree that that rarely stands alone, that those assessments are also for able to be used for learning and as learning the better, and so when um, what we see now, of course, with many of the assessments is you don't get them back for a whole year and <laughs> yeah. then it's moved on you don't even right they they're, right. they're 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 not designed to be for or as learning mm-hmm.
2: right and and the fact that we don't ever see them, we can't talk with students about them. There's no assessment or conversation about, you know, the process. So it's not as learning either.
1: And they're, and they're used for larger systemic things like rating schools and Mm -hmm. um, rating teachers and things like that that they were clearly not designed for. Mm -hmm. And that with our obsession around numbers and, and quantifying everything within our system, we've, we've sort of abused that a bit.
3: Yes, exactly just a bit yes I and I you know I could also I I, there's many things to say but um, my son is actually going to be taking for the first time the the park assessment this year as a third grader and it's going to be on the computer and typing and he doesn't know how to type so you know you have to ask what at at some level what the test is testing isn't what we think it's testing and there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of kinds of mismatches with that in terms of English when you're doing the math portions, um, so there's there's lots of issues of it mm-hmm. not actually testing what we we want to test it even for a systems level um,
1: test. Yeah, sure. Interesting. So you've you've put a lot of ideas out here. Your organization has a lot of ideas for us as leaders to think about. And since most of our listeners are in the leadership realm, uh, what kinds of ideas? And what kinds of things have you learned from other leaders who are attempting to move towards a learner-centered environment? And what kind of advice would you give us and other leaders for leading these changes?
3: That's a great question. So we have had the privilege of meeting and now talking to hundreds of superintendents, principals, teachers, students, um, parents, and other organizations that support educators in the education system who are already experimenting in a learner-centered paradigm. And some of the things that we have taken away from how they got started, for example, um, and this includes you guys, uh, you started with engaging your community on high-level questions of what do you want, um, what are the kinds of outcomes that you want your graduates to be graduating with? Um, And I think you did the profile Mm-hmm. Of, of a graduate, and we're finding that so many districts start with that, and then they take the dialogue to the next level and say, okay, for those kinds of outcomes, is our system really designed to produce those outcomes, and it, um, they either read a book, um, they uh, watch TED Talks, they do something to be provocative, um, you know, the Sir Ken Robinson um, uh, RSA uh-huh. drawing, for example, hey, somebody, to really yeah. begin to uh, to begin to to un it, to expose their current paradigm and to expose the limits of the current system to deliver the kinds of outcomes we now all want for kids in the 21st century. Um, and once that begins to open up, people then begin to say, all right, then we want to move towards a learner-centered system. It's It may be, str- you know, uncomfortable at times. Um, It may be strange at times. It's not going to look like what you did when you were a kid. It's not going to necessarily look like how you were taught. But people are now ready to begin that uncomfortable space because they now know what they're committed to. And they know that the current way that they've been doing it, tweaking it, modifying it, isn't going to get there. And so they start making the steps to move to either competency-based or they start personalizing learning or making it relevant and contextualized. So they start somewhere and then they start expanding from that, that one place that they start. The other thing we've noticed from the the pioneers is that learner agency is the, uh, when people start with that as the backbone and start with the learner, you get really dramatically different results right up front. Mm. Um, So having student voice and being, asking them and beginning to help them express how they want to learn um, and know themselves as learners and begin to make the learning process transparent, even without the other structural changes, leads to faster change overall. So that's, it's been an interesting observation and we just had a, um, a convening where we had five students present to, um, to a group of adults. These were all kids who were really ill-served by a traditional model who had now been moved, were now in learner-centered education models. They were articulate. They could explain how they learn, um, what their interests are, what, how, what they're learning now is going to provide the kind of future that they want. And hearing from those students was transformative as well. I now believe that that has to be that, – that's another really fast starter is listening to the student, is engaging your students and listening to them um, and beginning to design with them.
1: Yeah, some really important takeaways there that I think uh, we will apply in our own situation, uh, and I think that our listeners can really take away uh, from that as well. And I think from a leadership perspective too, how do we? Um, I ask myself this question: like, how do we provide that space so people can experience that discomfort in moving from the current model to this to this new model too? That it has to be okay to take those risks and things to not work out exactly as planned. And how do you create another iteration of something and move forward? And and as leaders, we need to be sure that we give them that space and that, that okay to not be entirely successful the first time, but as long as we keep moving forward towards that vision and keep reflecting and having those conversations and giving the time and space to do that as well. I think those, Mm -hmm. those are important in helping us move forward, but you've definitely shared some things from your experiences and working with that, those practitioners, which I'm sure is going to really build into a pretty robust network as time goes by, Mm -hmm. as more and more of us start to think about uh, the ways that we're going to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to see how we uh, can connect with each other.
3: And if I could just build on one of the things you said about giving people the space to learn, to try, to fail, to learn from that and, and continue to move, which what you just described is exactly what we want for kids. And so to get, to have kids be able to do all of that, we have to allow the adults to do all of that and ourselves. So
2: uh, we'd like to wrap up the show with a similar question to the first question. Um, what beautiful question are you thinking about now? What are you working on, on next?
3: So the beautiful question in many ways is, is always going to be the same of, mm-hmm. of how do we provide a great education experience to each and every child so that they are thriving now, not just once they graduate, but thriving in life now and in the future. Um, and the, the question that we have been engaged in, in particular, over the past few months and will be ongoingly is is inquiring into those who have been least served by the current model um, making sure that as we move into these learner-centered environments, that we're, we're really expanding our view of what is, quote-unquote, average or normal. Um, and so I will make a plug. If, uh, if you have not read the book by Todd Rose, For the End of Average, it is a must read. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he exposes is there's no such thing as an average person. And our whole system was designed around this notion that there is an average um, and he says, when you have multiple factors, he sh- shows it scientifically. If you have ten factors that you are trying to make an average on, like IQ tests or or a standardized test, <laughs> um, that really you can get, nobody is the average on all of those on all of those things. Um, and so, how do we expand our own view that there is really no normal, and we're not trying to just Get more and more, you know, we're not trying to differentiate from a normal. We actually are trying to recognize each child as unique um, and see them as assets and gifts um, rather than as deficiencies and something that we have to correct or make up for.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
3: those are the questions we're living with now is, how, you know, what does it look like when you're really meeting each child knowing that each child is unique?
1: So it sounds like that, uh, that that book that you referenced, too, really provides some fuel for the conversation of moving towards something that's more personalized, something that recognizes uh, the uniqueness of each individual. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, not only students within the system, but also all those others who are working in the system, including teachers as well as leaders. Exactly. So I'd like to actually ask you one more question. And, um <laughs> It's something I'm very curious about, in in uh, reading your bio at the beginning, that you actually uh, led this discussion and this uh, creation of this this process uh, mm-hmm. with all these diverse uh, minds in the room. Uh, I'm very curious, like what did that look like? Because it does seem. I remember when I read read that in the report that you know you've get, and you look at the list of the folks that were involved in that, and you know you wonder how how they all came to some consensus because i think one of the things that we struggle with in this country about education is that there is no consensus on what it should look like and um clearly you were able to get all these diverse stakeholders into a room over a extended period of time i guess it was probably several uh, months and uh so what did that look like what what because that that's that's quite an achievement
3: we had, uh, we, it was over 18 months. We had six two-day meetings over that time. And when they started, they will tell you that it, it did not look pretty. <laughs> there was not a lot of agreement in the room um, because we purposely built the room to have charter school advocates, public school advocates, people who believed testing set the floor, to people who believed testing was ruining the system to uh, people who were focused on social and emotional learning or technology or wraparound services. Uh, and so as you can imagine, putting them all into the room for the first time together, um, there was a lot of dissension in the room. And we had facilitators. So one thing is we had highly skilled facilitators leading this particular conversation. The other piece is we, one of the, the people that we hired actually works in helping shift people's paradigms it has you really looking and investigating the underlying assumptions that you might be blind to um because a paradigm inherently you are blind to we don't actually go around thinking that we're breathing air all day we just do (laughs) um and so a lot of the education system is like that it's just how it is and it's and so So we actually brought those kinds of things um, to the forefront so that people could could step out of it. That is not always necessary. I mean, we're seeing this with you guys, with all sorts of pioneers around the country, that the time is ripe for beginning to to see that paradigm and have it be exposed. Um, This was three years ago that they were going through this process now. And so it wasn't as ripe for that, and we were, um, and the people themselves. We did not bring together because they saw that new future yet, but because they wanted to see that new future. Um, and But in terms of tips for other people being able to bring people together, having people come as individuals, even though they represent very large institutions and a lot of networks and influence, and they might be in your district bringing your school board together, your you know, your teachers, your parents' groups, et cetera. Um, the more that they are able to connect on a human level out of their deep commi- commitments for kids um, and work backwards out of that, um, the better off you are. Rather than having people come as their opinions, their um, their expertise, um, their backgrounds, which are all relevant and important, but that leads to more dissension in the conversation of people wanting to be right and to carry an agenda. Um and the more you can get to a place where you are all human beings together, figuring out a new future for kids that we don't even know how exactly how to get to. Um, uh, the more fun it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the more creative the process can be.
1: yeah, well, that sounds it sounds like it was, it was probably exciting times much of the time uh, and and challenging too. So I think that you've you've come up with a a really inspiring um, document and uh report and i think it's going to be helpful and i'm sure it has been helpful for a lot of people and i know it's going to be helpful for us as well and so this has been a really really great conversation thank you kelly Mm
3: -hmm. well thank you so much for having me i'm so impressed with the network that you're creating um and the and the transformation that you're leading so thank you
2: Thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners in the show notes, you can learn more about Education Reimagined. Um, You will see the link to the home of Education Reimagined, and be sure to download the newsletter, Pioneering. You'll also see an interesting document there, uh, FAQs about Education Reimagined, and Kelly's contact information, both email and um, her Twitter, at edreimagined.
1: Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions include, what knowledge, skills, and dispositions do you want your students to have when they graduate from your schools and become part of a connected global learning environment? And second, how do your current learning environments support your vision? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment, or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 29. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Kelly.
2: Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: Thank you.